And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. It is always a pleasure to sit across the table from Michael Schumacher. And I'm sure many of you are well acquainted with the great work that he has done over the years. I'm pretty sure the very first time I spoke with uh, Mike Schumacher was about his biography of filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. But uh, there's all kinds of other books that he has written over the years. And, and his career dates back to before I was here at WGTD. And I know Bill Guy enjoyed speaking with uh, uh, Michael Schumacher on several occasions. I know especially a uh, uh, biography of Phil Oates. Yes. And, uh, and uh, many other books of, 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 of various uh, topics. And uh, I'm excited to be able to speak with uh, Mike Schumacher about his most recent book, which is one in sort of a series of books that he has written about noteworthy shipwrecks. And uh, you might remember our conversation about his book, The uh, Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, we talked about his book, Torn in Two, The Sinking of the Daniel J. Morell. Uh, we have talked about uh, several other uh, books of this nature. His most recent is called Too Much Sea for Their Decks, Shipwrecks of Minnesota's North Shore and Isle Royale. This is a book that... Uh, examines shipwrecks that occurred in the waters of Lake Superior, some of them uh, in and around the port of Duluth, Minnesota. And uh, the book also includes a fascinating final section in which Mike tells us the story of three devastating storms which affected the area. And uh, it's it's a lot packed into this book. And uh, by the time we're done, we have learned a whole lot about the perils of, 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 of sailing, particularly at a certain point in time when a lot of modern technology had not yet been developed, which now, thankfully, of course, keep people uh, safe on the Great Lakes and on the oceans of, of the world. Uh, it's a really important book, and it's published by the University of Minnesota Press. And I'm so glad that Michael Schumacher is here to talk about too much sea for their decks, shipwrecks of Minnesota's North Shore and Isle Royale. Michael Schumacher, we welcome you back to the morning show. Thanks. It's always fun to be here. It's so good to be talking with you. It's been too long. We were trying to remember if it's uh, been since before COVID that we actually spoke right. on the morning show. I'm not right. sure, but it for sure it has been too long. So I'm glad we can have this conversation. I want to start with kind of uh, an overarching question uh, since you have written so much about shipwrecks, and there is no question that uh, the public has, or at least a large swath of the public, has a real fascination with shipwrecks. And there is something particularly dramatic about uh, a boat going down. Uh, after having done all this writing about various shipwrecks, uh, do you have some understanding about what the allure is at its heart? You know, it's really funny that you mention that because my late great father once asked me, he said, Mike, when are you going to write a book that people want to read? <laughs> and I thought that was, I was like, thanks for the support, Dad, you know. But, but really, because so much of what I've written in the past appealed to a certain type of person or a certain segment or whatever, people 
are interested in shipwrecks. I don't know why. I don't know why I have such a tremendous interest, and I do, in the Great Lakes and in Lake Michigan in particular. Hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, though, I used to beg my parents to take me to the lake. And now I live on the lake, and, and I look out and I see the water. And I don't know why that is. I, I think there's something. For me, the allure has always been that there's nothing terribly special about sailing. Hmm. The, the people that do it are just good, hardworking, blue-collar people. And I've always had an affection for them. I've worked on the boats, loading and unloading, way, way, way back when we had a port in Kenosha. And I knew who these people were. And I've always had a a certain affection for just regular blue-collar people. Now, you take those people and you put them out in the middle of a lake and they hit a storm or whatever, and things that they never could have predicted Things that they don't know how to handle are happening. And so it tells us an interesting story about these people. They're not, you know, experts at it. They're, they're winging it hmm. as their very lives are in danger. So hmm. that has a lot to do with it, for me anyway, personally. Right, the intrinsic drama of contending with something completely unexpected, unpredictable, and in many cases it's a matter of literally life and death. Exactly. The stakes and couldn't be higher. It, it, and people seem to like it. The Edmund Fitzgerald book still, I've joked about it in, in, in the recent past. Well, hasn't everybody bought that book that would be interested in it? Because it's been out for some time now. The book came out in 2005, hmm. and it's still in print, and it's still selling. And it's wow. like... Hasn't everybody bought that? But there's something about that boat. Maybe it has to do with, and in fact, I'm sure it has something to do with the Gordon Lightfoot song. Uh, But people are just fascinated by mysteries. Mm -hmm. Fitzgerald is a big mystery. Nobody knows why it sank. Uh, And there's just something, and I think that's how it is, too, with a lot of readers. They're just regular folks. You know, I I love going on these book tours and stuff and meeting these regular folks that are just fascinated by these. Mm-hmm. There's actually a, a a website called BoatNerd.com. <laughs> huh. There are a lot of boat nerds out there, of which I am one. Hmm. Another thing that you say early in the book is that, uh, I mean, some of these past books, like a book about the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald or the Carl D or whatever it might be, that's the story, and, and, and it has a flow to it, and in many cases it will have kind of an overarching theme. This book, of course, is about a whole bunch of shipwrecks. Yes. And so uh, very much more episodic in nature, and so it's, it's not going to have that grand arch in quite the same way um, with a couple of possibilities that maybe only occurred to you after the fact. And one of them is that in many of these stories, the city of Duluth, Minnesota, figures really, really prominently. Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about Duluth and its centrality in so many of these stories and and the importance of Duluth, particularly during these years that we're talking about that are covered in your book. It's interesting to me because this was a fact that I did not realize. 
that at one point, right around the turn of the 20th century, next to New York, Duluth was the busiest port in the United States. Hmm. Now, that was kind of a stunning thing to learn because I think of Duluth, and I still do, is just a, a good small city. But Duluth, for some reason, was where if you were on the Great Lakes, you were going to end up in Duluth sooner or later. Hmm. And when they built the port, because the the harbor didn't open, the big harbor, until really uh, 1905. Hmm. And so, and that was following the big storm that you were alluding mm-hmm. to earlier. Uh, they decided to dig this new port, which they did, and, and it's still in operation today. The big transfer bridge is still there. And... Um, it was just a, a fascinating sort of story to me. One of the more interesting times that I spent, <clears throat> and readers or, or listeners may not find it as interesting as I did, but I spent about a half hour talking to a guy whose sole purpose in the winter months was to keep the big bridge between Duluth and Superior clear. Hmm. Because once you're on that bridge, you don't get off. <laughs> you know, you're on till you reach the other side. Yes. No, and, there's no exit. <laughs> no yeah, desirable exit. Right. Yeah. And it's it's going over to Mississippi, so all this mist is coming up, and it freezes over, and then there's all the snow and everything else. It's quite a job. And just sitting and talking to this guy was fascinating to me. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the things about... These, in this case, Duluth, uh, these cities or the people that work at them uh, that I find interesting because a whole history is being worked out here right in front of our eyes. Now, if you live in Duluth, you're not maybe as aware of it as much because I've seen Bob Dylan Street or Avenue, whichever it's called, Bob Dylan Way, mm. uh, the big street named after Bob Dylan. There is a Bob Dylan memorial sewer cap (laughs) in Duluth. It's a city with its own history, in other words, and they're proud of it, and rightfully so. And so when I'm doing books like this, I try to work as much into the book about some of these locations as possible because people otherwise may not have ever heard of it. And Duluth was certainly one of those cities. I interviewed a number of people just about the city. Hmm, hmm. You talk about this harbor being uh, especially beautiful. I mean, mm-hmm. just beautiful to look at then and now. And you also describe the, the Duluth Harbor as being uh, especially dangerous or hazardous. Yes. And I think it's at least in part because of a really long canal. Can, can you there just is. tell us a little bit about There's that? There's a big canal that leads into the actual harbor part of the harbor uh, that that comes in off of Lake Superior. And to get into this canal, you have to make almost a right turn, a right angle turn. And when you start thinking about some of these boats, as they got longer and longer, that became more and more difficult to Mm. do. And the Matafa was the perfect example, was the Matafa was trying to turn in for safe harbor in the middle of the 1905 storm, and it slammed into one side of 
the, the, the concrete uh, leading into the harbor. And, and uh, it broke off, the, the tail end of the ship broke off, and all of these people were stranded, the crew, uh, on, on either side of the, the boat. Now, the Matafa was an interesting boat because it did not have the big after-decking that most of the boats that were being built then had. In other words, the crew quarters, everything was below decks while the water's flooding in, and they can't, they can't stay below deck. They have to go out onto the deck. Well, it was below zero outside, and a number of men lost their lives freezing to death waiting for help within eyesight of the people on shore. They, people gathered, over a thousand people gathered. They burned fires. They held a vigil. They tried everything to give these guys encouragement when there was really none to be found. Hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, as you describe what happened to the uh, Matufa that it, it was in a sense, impaled yes. on that north pier, and yes. and 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 so held held there, and, and yes, they're not out in the middle of Lake Superior; they're practically on the shore, and yet just out of reach. And you also tell us that the life-saving station personnel that perhaps could have been there to assist, they were someplace else helping yes. another ship in trouble. Yes, that 1905 storm was a horrible storm, the worst that Lake Superior has ever faced. And, yeah, the life-saving people from Duluth were off working with another boat, which wasn't in any real peril at all to speak of. It had grounded. It was sitting there, but they were trying to get everybody off the boat and everything else. And so so often with these stories, for me, it's not one thing that brings a, a, a boat down. It's not one thing that creates all of this craziness. It's usually a combination of factors. And that's what it was with the Matafa was a combination of factors. These people could see the people standing there giving them encouragement. The people on the, the, the bow end of the ship that was still above water were safe. The only thing they had problems with was because of the sinking of the stern section of the ship, there was no heat. Hmm. And it was below zero, and they had to find ways to heat. So they improvised. They created, in a bathtub, heat. Hmm. They burned anything that could be burned on the boat, for example. And they made a, 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 you know, like an exhaust area or place for the smoke to go out of cans and such. They, they did what had to be done. And this is what I find fascinating. Right. You know, it, it reminds me a little of the amazing story of Apollo 13. Yeah. And, of course, that, that, when that when it gets disabled out in space, these astronauts are having to frantically uh, improvise. Yes. And, and, of course, with guidance from folks down on the ground. And, of course, these folks on the Matufa, you know, they didn't have uh, mission control personnel <laughs> trying to work these things out. Uh, they they had to do all of this improvisation on their own. That's what I mean. They're blue-collar working stiffs that all of a sudden are having to face problems that engineers would have a hard time figuring. Right. And, of course, uh, some of them thankfully do survive, but yes. some of the crew of the Matufa uh, do pass away. Yes. And, and it's, it, it, that in and of itself is an amazing uh, uh, sto- uh, story. 
I, I want to make sure to mention something that comes up in this particular chapter about the, the, uh, the, the storm of 1905, and that is in a couple of other instances in which uh, ships are run aground or whatever, and we do have ship's personnel that are actually on shore, but by no means are they safe yet. I mean, we're, right. they're in the midst of this horrific storm. And, and so you, you describe the desperate search for many of them to try to find a phone. Yes. We have to remember, this is 1905. I mean, right. and probably plenty of people don't even have phones. Right. But desperately trying to find a phone in order to contact somebody from the parent company or whatever uh, who can come and, and bring them aid. And I never would have in a million years thought of that being one aspect of, of this particular story. It's incredible. Well, history is so strange that way. People wonder why it took all these years to find some of these boats that had sunk. Hmm. For example, well, there's a good explanation, a very simple one. The aqualung had not been invented. They could People could not dive as deep as they do today. They weren't mixing gases. Uh, you know, I talked to the captains of these big thousand-footers out there now. Uh, they talk about having, like, GPS and having radar. There was no <laughs> radar back then. And, and even for weather forecasting, to warn the boats now, they, there was no understanding of upper air disturbances and so forth. So all this came, came about over the years. And so a lot of times these people were dealing with things that were way beyond any understanding of the time. Right. And you made an interesting point uh, when you talk about, I mean, one of the reasons such terrible things would happen, especially during storms, was that there was at that point very limited means for predicting the weather, weather forecasts. And and those weather forecasts probably understandably tended to be distrusted or disbelieved. I they mean they were. <laughs> and, and frankly, a lot of people they, they still are. People don't have the respect for nature that they they should. There's a certain human arrogance. We can beat this. We can do this. We can uh, you know, I, you know, I just finished the story for the new book that I'm working on now about the Milwaukee. And they had a guy who, as their captain, had a nickname, Heavy Weather. Heavy, <laughs> heavy Weather McCain. Hmm. Uh, McKay. And, and the problem here was he had a big, powerful boat. He knew he did. And he went out in all sorts of weather. Well, he finally reached a storm or encountered one that he couldn't, and it took his boat down, and McKay was found, I believe, uh, somewhere not far from Kenosha. Uh, they found his body. Um, it was There's a certain sort of belief that we have as a human race, perhaps, that we are capable of handling everything thrown at us. Well, Mother Nature may have a, a, a way of disagreeing with that. Mm. To say the least, and boy, does that play out again and again in this book. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Michael Schumacher, and we're talking about his most recent book, which is called Too Much Sea for Their Decks, Shipwrecks of Minnesota's North Shore and Isle Royale. So uh, most of what occurs in this book uh, occurs on the waters of Lake Superior, and many of these uh unfortunate incidents uh, happen 
close to uh, the port of, of Duluth, Minnesota. And as we've been talking about, uh, the whole last portion of the book uh, is an incredible account of, of three gigantic storms and their impact that they had on, on the region. Mike, I want to circle back to something that I think is an important theme to, to kind of throw into the mix. This is at a portion in the book when you are kind of talking about uh, this is at the opening of the third section called Three Killer Storms. And you're talking about uh, you know some of the issues that we need to remember, including very limited ability to forecast the weather, and we, as we already talked about, and, and the fact that even the forecasts that did exist exist tended to be kind of disbelieved. But then you mention something else, and that is that greed mm-hmm. was, of course, uh, also a factor in this. And you go right on after that to talk about success courting disaster. Yes. Uh, so just talk for a moment about the kind of corporate greed that we are talking about and the ways in which that could be uh, a, 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 a factor that could lead to disaster. Sure. The, historically, the worst storms on the Great Lakes have occurred in November. It, it's a transitional month, as we know. Temperatures go from being very moderate to being very cold. Uh, weather kicks up and creates a problem. Now, November was always the last month of shipping on the Great Lakes. Hmm. So the corporations wanted to get as many hauls as possible in that month. Now, you're getting deeper and deeper into the month. Now, losing one, one trip could be worth a lot of money. So they were pushing... They claim they did not, but they did. They pushed to try to get that last one of the year in, to do this or to do that, and and to do it before we have to shut it down. Superior, for example, freezes over. A lot of people don't realize that, but that whole lake has frozen over in the past. Hmm. Uh, some years back, I was asked to be a keynote speaker at the opening the seasonal opening of the Split Rock Life Lighthouse. And it was kind of interesting because the lighthouse is it's a couple hours north of Duluth, so it's way up there. And it's, it's set way up on a cliff. It's one of the most beautiful lighthouses. It is the most beautiful one I've ever seen. Hmm. And um, so I get there. And I go up into the lighthouse with, with my host, and we're looking out over the water, and now this is in mid-May, the official opening, mid-May. And what do we see? An icebreaker. The, the lake is still frozen over, wow. and they have an icebreaker ship out there carving paths for people having to get through. So it, it's very, very dangerous uh, at that time of year. I, I wrote uh, fairly recently about a boat that was sunk because of ice. It hit ice, and, and it, it blew a hole in it, and that was the end of it. Uh, so the corporations uh, really are, are pretty particular about wanting to get that last run in. Now, it's funny because there for a while, and it was a fairly short period, they ran year-round 
even on Superior. Hmm. And then they decided it was too much, and they, they, they pretty much quit. You can still go out in December, January here and look out across the water and see a boat once in a while. But most of them have pretty much turned in for the winter. They get all their work done, repairs and everything, and, and, and get ready for the following spring. Hmm. But it's very dangerous out there. Right. And so what you're saying is these these shipping companies uh, would be tempted to extend the fall season perhaps a bit longer than was maybe prudent. Absolutely. Uh, they They say they don't. They say that the decision is left up to the captain. Yet one of the the, the Smith that went down in the 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 nineteen thirteen storm, they had told the captain of that boat he wanted to keep it in, and they told him, "You want your job? Hmm. Because if you still want a job with us next year, it was the last run of the season." And they told him, "You take this boat out." He took it out, and it sank. And it was a new boat. It was only a few years old. Hmm. It was a new boat. The paint had barely dried on it. And uh, this man and his crew lost their lives. Hmm. By the way, that story in and of itself, uh, the storm of 1913, is incredible. And we don't have time to really touch on it all. But, but you do an amazing job of kind of summarizing the ferocity of this storm, which you call hurricane on the lakes it had all the the qualifications they have certain the 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 weather people have certain qualifications to to qualify as a hurricane wind speed up to such and such a mile and i honestly don't have those figures in front of me but uh it has to hold it for i think it's four hours or longer uh and the wave length or or height has to be such and and so on this had all the qualifications. We think of hurricanes as tropical, yeah. uh, but this particular storm, it was not. Hmm. And it destroyed eight boats on Lake Huron, and big ones, big freighters. It destroyed them in a small period of just a matter of hours. It, it brought down eight boats. So this was a, a major storm. Well, and you tell us that the the scope of the storm was unprecedented, too, in that this storm affected all of the Great Lakes. I, mean, I think Cleveland, that still they still have, and I may be wrong on this, but I believe it's right, that the snow that fell in Cleveland during that storm was a record. Hmm. It paralyzed the city, and that's on Lake Erie. Hmm. Uh, it was one of those storms that is just, I included the storms for reasons in this book. The, the storm of 1905 was the worst storm ever to hit Lake Superior. So I wanted to have that in there, and it had tons of stories. And then the storm of 1913 was the hurricane, the worst to hit all of the lakes. And the 1940 Armistice Day storm I wanted to include because it showed you how fast these things move. Hmm. These duck hunters had gone out in the morning wearing very light fall clothes. It was uh, warmer than average day. The storm blew in, and they had no protection. They had gone onto these little islands to do their duck hunting, and they couldn't get across the water to get home. And they were—they had no—they weren't properly attired. And so I wanted people to realize these storms. It's not like we we think. 
oh, we had two or three days. We knew the storm system was coming in. No, they blew in. Right. And there's, of course, you know, nothing in the way of weather forecasting, just to say nothing of the weather channel and yeah. or whipping out your phone. And I mean, you know, we, I mean, and we still don't know everything about the weather. No. Uh, but, but they knew next to nothing back then. Well, you think about 1905, for example, the jet stream. There were no jets in 1905 or in 1913. They, they had no idea what upper air disturbances and that or how air moved, really. They, back then, in those days, they sent warnings out. At, they, they kept the warnings in the port uh, in the form of flags. Hmm. Now they don't do that, obviously, but they did then. Or maybe they do use some flags, but that wasn't the sole source of communication. They let you know the wind was bad by putting out this type of flag or hmm. whatever. Times have changed so dramatically over the last century, and, and that's one of the things that's interesting about these books to me is just seeing how it works out. Absolutely. I don't think we've touched on this yet. Uh, we've sort of snuck close to it in talking about corporate greed sometimes being a, a, a factor in all of this. You, you tell us early on in the book that uh, if Duluth, Minnesota, and the harbor there is one predominant theme, another theme that we do kind of trace through a lot of this book is essentially the history of commercial shipping. Yes. And uh, and I do think as we read your book, we get a good sense of that, of 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 the importance of, of commercial shipping, and particularly when it came to Lake Superior, how once upon a time there were very few boats, and then sure. everything just kind of explodes. Give us some sense, a general sense, of what was being shipped across Lake Superior. and Everything, and- really, uh, if you think about it. Now, for so many of the boats that are involved in this particular book, they were building the big cities. Lumber was being shipped hmm. to the development of, for, the, for the development of Chicago and Milwaukee and so hmm. forth. Lumber was a big one. Then when the, the iron ore deposits were found, or the massive range, you know, the Misabi and such, in Minnesota, all of a sudden the demand for iron picked up substantially, and so they were shipping iron. But copper was a big one because there was a lot of copper up in the Lake Superior area, and so they were shipping copper. They, they shipped whatever, and then there were the smaller boats, like the ones that went to the Isle Royal was a perfect example. They were bringing everything from mail to groceries because hmm. the, the island is so isolated. So th- almost anything that could be shipped was. Hmm. And what made this kind of interesting for me doing the history of shipping was, you know, in the beginning you had uh, the Native Americans and, and uh, the French settlers and so forth working out of birch bark canoes hmm. And when the book really starts, uh, it, they're, they're working out of schooners, two- mm. and three-masted schooners, and everybody's seen those. Uh, well, they were being replaced when steam started to power these boats by, and, and by uh, extension mm. uh, of what I said before, uh, by steel, 
They were being built out of steel. Then you had, for a brief period, the whaleback, which is, to me, very fascinating. It was a big cigar-shaped boat that sank real far into the water when it was loaded, and you could barely see it. And then you had the big freighters. They were getting bigger and bigger. And so there's this big history that's taking place over the course of the, the shipwrecks covered in this book. Mm. The second portion of the book uh, focuses very much on what you just touched on, Isle Royale, and the, the small little islands that kind of uh, surrounded it. And it sounds like uh, that was an especially treacherous place it is. For, for, for ships to go. Explain what made it so treacherous. Well, it's an island because it's, it's the, the seafloor that rose above the surface of the water, essentially. In other words, the, 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 the bottom of Lake Superior around the isle can be very, very deep or it can be very, very shallow depending on how the land formed. Mm. And so boats would ground on that all the time. Mm. And uh, you think you're safe, but if you came in just a little bit too close, you got hit. You know, you or you hit rising, you know, the sea, the, the, the bottom of the sea. And, and so... It, it has. It's it's unbelievable. Everybody should see that island at mm. some point, because it's still undeveloped for the most part. You know, you're not allowed to take any uh, vehicles on the island. For example, mm. you have to take a, a a boat out to the island, and it lets you off. They, they they allow bicycles and such, but you're not allowed. And it's a big island. It's very large, and the wildlife is still the wildlife, and so mm. forth. And so when these people had crashes of some sort or another near the island, they were up against a lot. Mm. Uh, and, and people, they didn't back in the day say of the Kamloops, which was one of my favorite entries in the book. The Kamloops, they didn't have a radio. So nobody knew that the Kamloops had grounded and sunk. But the people on the Kamloops got off uh, and made it to the island, but nobody was knew they were on the island. They all died of exposure on the island. And so some of this stuff is, it, it just tells you something about how we've developed, and that's why people still look for these boats. One of the real joys of, of working on these books has been talking to what are called shipwreck hunters. Hmm. There are people that go out looking for ships that haven't been seen. And... Um, I've I've just done a series of interviews with several shipwreck hunters about certain boats that they've found that are going to be in my next book. Mm. And the Kamloops was interesting because I talked to the the people that found it after all those years. 60 years, I think, yeah, after, the, it, it after was, it went down. <laughs> it was amazing. Mm. They had an idea it was in this area, and then they do what they call cutting the grass. They go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth say north-south, then they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, east-west, till they've covered as much as they can using sonar side scan, hoping to get a hit, showing that there's a big vessel down there, which is what happened for these guys. Then hmm. they send, you know, whatever is needed. Uh, generally, they can mix gases and go down, dive the wrecks, and so they have to identify the boat. And the whole thing is kind of 
fascinating to me, the process. Absolutely. The, this particular story is particularly harrowing, this book, this boat called uh, The Kamloops and uh, uh, its, its uh, demise in uh, 1927. Yes. One of, the, uh, one of the things that you tell us about uh, how one of the things that would happen when a, when a boat would get caught in a sudden terrible storm is it would be iced. Yes. Uh, this is how you describe this moment. Uh, the storm worsened into one of the most intense on Lake Superior in years. Heavy snow fell. Temperatures dropped to below zero. Those on the lake, and there were many, received unwanted souvenirs from their natural opponent. A thick, white icing developed from the freezing water and spray hitting the decks and deck houses, enveloped the boats, wreaking havoc on hatch covers and adding considerable weight to the vessels. I mean, that's just one facet of what is going yeah. wrong in this moment. And and you kind of think about how life gets complicated when there's an ice storm, just like getting to your car in the driveway or whatever. Imagine trying to function on a ship. Try to see out the, the windows of the pilot house. You know, I mean, there were so many strange things about nature that we were reminded. Right. You know, the, the hard way. Yes, this story particularly. And another interesting facet about this story is that it actually involved two different ships, the, yes. uh, the Kamloops and the, the Quedoc, is that how you yeah, pronounce that maybe? I believe. And who they were kind of traveling in tandem. Yes. And I, I think what you describe <sighs> is the Quedoc, which was leading the way. It made it. The Kamloops didn't. Right. It saw these rocks ahead. It steered away in time and tried to warn uh, the Kamloops that is behind them. And apparently in all the roar of the wind and the heavy snow and so on, they just could not get that warning back to the second ship. That's the thing. Like I said, it's usually more than one thing that brings a vessel down. Uh, In the Kamloops case, you know, they they were taking a lot of ice and such. Uh, they knew they were in dire straits, and they knew what the, the 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 bottom of the sea was, so to speak, around the the island. But knowing that doesn't mean people find it hard to believe, but it's very very true. Some of these winds can blow a boat. It, I've I've read and heard of place of boats that have been blown completely across, say, Lake Michigan, by a storm. They start out on the Wisconsin side, end up on the Michigan side, and it wasn't their plan. That's just how, what happened. That's where Mother Nature wanted them to go. Yeah, well, well and that 13 storm especially was that way because the winds were so heavy for so long. These boats were just, the people on it, the crew, were just fighting literally to survive it. Right. Of course, you've already touched on this. What is especially tragic about the story of the Kamloops is that uh, at least some of its crew manages to survive. That is, yes. they manage to get to shore. Would that have been the Isle Royale itself? Yes. Or one of the, yes. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're going to survive, and indeed none of them managed to Right. The survive. last survivor left a note. Oh, right, a note in a bottle. Yes, in a bottle. They, they, you know, it, when you know, because I just wrote about this with one of the boats, when you know it's over, 
you know it's over. And this person on this boat and said And I think that. it was a woman. I think it was one of It two. was a woman uh, right. with the Kamloops, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and she just wanted her parents, for closure's sake, to know what had happened. And uh, some of these things I find very fascinating. Uh, on the purser on board this other boat that I just finished writing about left a note that was found where he just said, this is the worst storm I've ever been in. It looks really bad, on, on, and on, and on. And he, he was official to the bitter end. He said, and, and the, the crew is about the same as it's always been. Hmm. You know, they just, they're up against things that they can't control. Hmm. And, they, and, and it must be a horrible feeling. Like we had that, that wreck several years back of that boat that was trying to race a hurricane uh, in the middle of the, um, I think, the Caribbean, and failed. It went down. And people knew the boat was going to sink. They couldn't keep it from sinking. But they were stuck on this boat, and they're emailing. Can you imagine what it would be like to get an email from a loved one telling you, I'm going to die? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what some of this was like. You know, they, they, and the people that survived. I was very, very lucky with this book because <clears throat> there's an archivist at the University of Wisconsin Superior that supplied me with testimony that had never been seen before, never used from captains and crew from ships that had survived where others hadn't. That that spoke of all of this and. It's very moving to read about this. Mm. Uh, human beings are losing their lives here. Right. I am reminded of the uh, amazing story you tell of a boat called the Cumberland, which yes. is actually the first story you tell in this second section of the book uh, focused on uh, wrecks uh, on and around Isle Royale. And part of what's interesting about the story of the Cumberland is that there's this whole succession of misfortunes, yes, one after another, each one really, really different, and then ultimately, uh, it goes down altogether in in July of eighteen seventy seven. But that, I mean, it's it's amazing to think about people getting aboard a ship that has this checkered history of so many right. near misses, one after another, and that's part of the legacy of this. I mean, I find it interesting. Sailors are amongst the most superstitious people I've ever met. Hmm. And there are some boats that get the reputation of being cursed. Hmm. And there will be sailors that will not work on that boat under any circumstances. Uh, or they get premonitions. This isn't good. Hmm. So they stay in. They don't go out with the boat. Hmm. And the boat sinks. Uh, these kinds of things I find fascinating. How do they know this? Where do they get, you know, when that, you've heard the whole story about how rats desert a ship. Right, right. But they, they actually believe that. If you see the rats taken off, don't get on this boat. Hmm. I think one of the most haunting passages in the whole book uh, is in this chapter about the Cumberland, but it's not yet the story of it actually going down. This is several years earlier. November, you talked mm. about November being a dangerous month. November of 1874, you tell us, while carrying passengers and a heavy load of cargo, the Cumberland encountered a hellacious storm so severe that the twisting of the vessel loosened her caulking, causing a serious leak that her pumps could not handle. 
the captain ordered the livestock penned on deck to be thrown overboard. According to reports, hogs, sheep, and between 75 to 150 cattle were dumped into Lake Superior while the Cumberland sped to the nearest port. I mean, I just get a lump in my throat when I think about yeah. that kind of ordeal. And even beyond those poor animals are those poor crewmen having to do that. Yeah. And all in this desperate bid to stay alive, which ultimately they managed to do. The, the animals are lost. Most of the dry goods are lost, also tossed overboard to keep this ship afloat. Yep. Uh, I mean, and, and, and that is what you're writing about again and again, these incredible stories. I try of- to imagine that in my head when I'm doing the research on these books, what it would be like to be out in the middle of a, a hellacious storm, as I say, uh, and trying to dump cattle overboard. What kind of a job would that be? How hard would that be? Uh, I had that recently with uh, one of the car ferries where they dumped automobiles overboard. Uh, Now, that's not an easy task under the best of circumstances. Now, do it in the middle of a storm. Right, right. It's got to be something. Well, if you survive the storm, you'll never forget it. Right. That is for sure. Well, this book is just teeming with uh, incredible stories like this. And once in a while, there are are, are, are facets of the story that are uh, uh, happy endings. Uh, and, of course, many of them are, are, are stories that uh, are, are really uh, uh, full, of, full of tragedy in, in, in one case or another. It's really, really incredible. And before we uh, repeat the title of this, this, this current book... I want to give you just a minute or so, Mike, to talk about the book that you're working on right now. It's a another roundup, as they like to call them in the business. In other words, a whole bunch of boats, uh, and and uh, it covers almost a century. Nineteen eighteen, I'm sorry, eighteen forty-seven is the first one, and so uh, it's a lot, you know, a lot of different reasons that these boats went down on Lake Michigan. And uh, my editor had sent to me at one point, he said, you've never written about Lake Michigan. And I said, of course I have. The Carl Bradley, mm. uh, which I consider my best of the shipwreck books, uh, Carl Bradley, the Carl D, was sank at the top of Lake Michigan. Uh, he said, no, 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 I mean a roundup. Mm. And so we started talking, and there were more shipwrecks in Lake Michigan than there are on the other four lakes combined. Hmm. And so uh, there certainly was the material was there. My process was which ones should I include? Right. And I didn't want to do all the ones that everybody that follows shipwrecks knew about. I wanted some that were lesser known. So I found myself, I, I spent, God, I don't know how much time just making a list. And I still have that list, incidentally, mm. at home mm-hmm. and uh, of the ones I wanted to cover. And uh, it expanded from that. Hmm. Uh, I, I was lucky. I've got uh, a Milwaukee Public Library that's helping me out a lot on this one. They have a terrific archives. Wow. And they're sending me news clippings, and I even have telegrams. I've got every kind oh. of thing you can imagine being sent to me uh, to be able to piece together 
these different boats and their demises. Wow. Well, I can't wait to uh, read that book and to talk with you about it. But in the meantime, we want to remind people about this current book that everyone needs to be reading. Again, it's titled Too Much Sea for Their Decks, Shipwrecks of Minnesota's North Shore and Isle Royale, uh, published by the University of Minnesota Press. And this book, by the way, includes quite a few remarkable photographs. Many I love more them. Pho- yeah, many more photographs than one would ever imagine could possibly exist. The author, Michael Schumacher. Michael Schumacher, you've done it again. Thank you for giving the world yet another riveting, fascinating, illuminating book. And thank you for being my morning show guest today. Thank you. I appreciate your interest.